Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. All right, a little bit of follow-up from our last episode when we were talking about some of our goals and, and how we decide on the things that we want to work on. So shortly after we recorded that episode, one of our favorite podcasts that we, both of us listened to, Cortex, dealt with some of the similar ideas of uh, of goal setting. But they, they had a slightly different take on it that I liked. Uh, instead of talking about specific goals, uh, Gray and Mike were talking about yearly themes and uh, how the theme sort of drives what they do in a year. I think it's worth listening to if you enjoyed that part of our show. Uh, I do like the idea of of uh, getting away from a specific goal and sort of focusing on that theme because the theme can then drive you towards different things that you may not have thought about early on in the year and uh, and is maybe a little bit more forgiving in some ways. And uh, when I gave it some thought, I think uh, I think the, the themes that I'm going to have for, for 2018 are going to be sharing knowledge and timekeeping. So I think that's that's what I'm focusing on for uh, for 2018. Riffing off last episode, I have to say mine would just be tying up loose ends. Uh, now we've had a few people who've contacted us since uh, the episode where I talked about purchasing movements from Eterna, and uh, a few people who've asked about pricing, and and I wanted to address it a little bit. Uh, the pricing is is a bit difficult to talk about for a few reasons. The first is that Eterna doesn't make the pricing public. And, uh, and I'm a little bit uh, hesitant to share specific details of that pricing publicly just because they're not sharing that, uh, that information publicly. Uh, but above and beyond that, it's a little bit different than buying a lot of things that people are used to. Uh, when, you're, when you're purchasing these movements, there are a lot of different options available to you, not just in terms of the complications, uh, but there's also differences in pricing based on the type of Geneva stripes, for instance, that you get on the piece, um, or not having Geneva stripes on the piece. Also, different types of plating options that are available to you. Uh, obviously, the volume of units that you're buying, things of that nature. It, it's a bit difficult to to give specifics about it because, uh, again, it changes so dramatically. You can you can uh, obviously change the price quite a bit based on the different types of, uh, of finishing that you're getting. And also they have options for different, um, for instance, different fonts or different um, printing on things like the date wheels and, and whatnot. So there are a lot of different options available to you when, when you're doing that now. I, again, their pricing isn't really open to the public because they're not retailers. That's not what they're doing, although they do have a line of watches that they sell. And, and that information is is available on their website if you want to purchase a uh, an Eterna watch from them. And that's the, you know, obviously, cased and dialed and, and everything like that. Uh, but if you're just looking at watch movements, uh, again, they don't they don't really sell to the public like that. Uh, however, if you're a watchmaker and you're you're interested in getting information on it, on their their movements, they are definitely open to, to discussing it. And and they've been excellent to deal with. Uh, they've been certainly willing to uh, to to discuss movement prices with me. Uh, I'm not a well-known watchmaker by any means. I'm not a large brand. When I was purchasing the initial movements, I was only buying one movement at a time of a couple of different calibers, and uh, they were happy to deal with me. So even small watch brands or watchmakers, uh, they are happy to uh, to discuss pricing with you. So if you're if you're in the industry and you're looking to purchase movements for for watches, I, I highly recommend getting in contact with them. Uh, they've they've been excellent to deal with. Uh, and then I guess one last bit of uh, follow up: we have uh, created a few different ways for people to ask questions to us. One is through our uh, email address hello at offhours dot show. Uh, the other is using a hashtag on Twitter uh, hashtag ask off hours. If you have questions that you want to ask John or I about uh, whatever it is that we do, could be watchmaking, could be uh, uh, could be just making things in general, development, uh, whatever it happens to be. If uh, if you have some questions that you want to pose to us, uh, either of those will uh, will get in touch with us. Every few episodes, if we've got some interesting questions, we'll uh, 
we'll try and put something together and and maybe answer those uh, those questions if if we think there's something interesting to talk about there. SIHH, the the Salon International d'Autologerie, happens uh, just a few weeks back. That's the first major industry trade show that has happened since we started recording Off Hours. What do you what do you think of the uh, new releases at SIHH this year? I always enjoy watching the coverage from these shows. It's uh, and and I'm hoping hoping one of these years I get over for for one of the shows and be able to see some of the stuff in person. It is a a good chance to see some of the trends in the industry and where things are going. And uh, this year in particular, there were there were a few things that that really caught my eye, uh, and there were some watches that definitely definitely attracted my attention and gave me some ideas for for design ideas for myself for the future. So. Yeah, I I, uh, I really enjoyed the uh, the coverage this year, and it was yeah it was interesting seeing seeing some of the some of the trends this year, uh, some a few things that I noticed that have changed, and a um, few things that I'm happy with, a few things that I'm not. May I ask what what weren't you happy with? There are a few trends that that I think are are starting to go away a little bit that I'm that I'm happy to see, but I think are still a problem. One of the things in particular is women's watches, the design of women's watches. There's always, I think there's always going to be a place in ladies' watches for, I guess, pieces that are more jewelry pieces and are not necessarily practical time pieces. And I, I'm seeing a, a trend away from, for instance, like jewel-encrusted watches. And, uh, and I'm happy to see that. But I still think that a lot of the watch design... Uh, that's geared towards women is just too frivolous, and I would love to see some more interesting designs that aren't just, oh hey look at this, there's, you know, a thousand diamonds on this watch, and that's the design aesthetic of it. Uh, it would be really nice to see, um, you know, to see more interesting watches and more interesting watch design geared towards women. Or maybe stuff that's geared towards men who want a, a smaller watch that can also be worn by women. Uh, I think there's, uh, I think there's, it's time to to see something a little bit more interesting out of out of women's watch design than than just here's a, a pile of stones on it. Yeah, I think Cartier tends to do a, a pretty good job of delivering feminine pieces that aren't necessarily always encrusted or, or bejeweled in, in precious stones and uh, mm-hmm. uh what, are you, what are your thoughts on the the purple dial and royal oak that ap released this year would you consider that a, a woman's timepiece absolutely i think that i think that there are a lot of women who are wearing uh who are wearing watches that are probably being designed for men originally which is great uh but of course one of the problems with that is the the trend in in men's watches tends to be these uh, you know, relatively large watches, and uh, and that, of course, is difficult for for people with small wrists uh, to pull off. Like uh, Tamara, for instance, cannot pull off a large watch. Uh, her wrists are are very small, and I think even something like the uh, the Royal Oak would probably be too large for her to uh, pull off on on her wrist. Uh, so while I I'm, I know there certainly are people who can uh, who can pull that off, uh, I think it would be difficult for a lot of uh, a lot of people to uh, to do. Uh, the one I th- I saw that um, that really caught my attention that is uh, geared towards women, and I was I was a little bit surprised because I think it's uh, I think it's a great design, and other than a few diamonds that are on it, I would totally wear this watch myself. Romain Gauthier's Insight Micro Rotor. Hmm. The thing that I found interesting about this watch, uh, first off, they he, they did a a men's version of this watch last year, I think it was. This one is identical in size, in case size, to the one that they did last year that was directed towards men. Uh, I think it's around a 38 or 39 millimeter case. Uh, so I, I felt I thought that was interesting that that they chose not to differentiate the two designs by size because that's a very common thing. But I love what they've done with this, especially the version with the black mother of pearl. I think it's a, a very striking design. The micro rotor again. I, the my only complaint about this watch is that the micro rotor has diamonds on the the ladies' version of it, uh, whereas the men's version does not have diamonds on it. 
Uh, I would have loved to, I'd love to see this watch with something other than diamonds there, you know, maybe a little bit of engine turning in there, uh, something, something different. But I think that this, this watch is gorgeous. It's incredibly striking. And, uh, and I'd, I'd love to see more designs like this where they're, you know, they're more interesting than, than just a, a bunch of diamonds on a, on a watch. Yeah. R- Romain Gauthier being, uh, a very bespoke brand i'm sure if you you told him you didn't want the diamonds on the microwater he would <laughs> be more than happy to comply if if you're willing to, to shell out the coin to to acquire one of these pieces yeah at the price that they're at i'm sure that I, i'm certainly not going to be in a position that i'm ever going to be able to, to afford one of these watches unfortunately uh but I, i'm sure at that price if if you said hey let's lose the diamonds they probably would but uh i, I but looking at this watch again i would I would gladly put this watch on my wrist and, and wear it. I think this is a, I think it's a gorgeous design. I love the colors that are in it. I love the uh, the visual contrast of textures and yeah, I, I'm I'm happy to see that. Another piece that, if I recall correctly, it actually does have a, a diamond bezel on it, but diamonds aren't really the front and center piece. And there there might be a, a, a version of it without the diamonds as well. Cartier had a new piece this year called the Re- the Revelation something like 900 gold beads sandwiched between two pieces of sapphire with a, a sapphire image of the Katia Panther in the, the crystal. So it's a very unique piece for, for women where uh, if you tilt the watch and, and play with it back and forth, the, the gold beads will fill in the visage uh, of their panther and then slowly disappear and trickle down. It's the way the beads would falling through, a, say, an hourglass. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't, uh, yeah, I hadn't seen that piece when I was uh, looking through. That's uh, that's a great idea. I like that design. Yeah, very unique. It's got the the price tag to to match. <laughs> yes, unfortunately, um, something something people will realize when they start looking through some of these watches is that uh, none of these are inexpensive watches, and I will not be wearing any of these watches anytime soon. Unfortunately. It's one of the reasons why I make pens and one of the reasons why I'm making watches is that I, I can't afford many of the watches and pens that I want. So I'm uh, making making the, the, the things that I want instead. Well, that's how F.P. Jean started. So. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Uh, now, sticking with Cartier, one of the other uh, one of the designs that did catch my attention was the uh, Cartier Santos. And from what I understand... Uh, this is a, a a reimagining of an older design watch that, uh, or an older style of watch that they did many years ago. And uh, I, I'm a huge fan of what they've done with this. Uh, now, I, I, I'm a big fan of, of sort of the Art Deco era and, and a lot of the very bold graphic style of, of, of that. And uh, this watch is great. I love I love the squareness of it while still using sort of rounded corners. Uh, I love the exposed screws around the uh, the bezel and holding the bracelet together. Uh, I, I love so much about this watch. It, I, I haven't really been a big fan of a lot of the Cartier design. I find I find it too, too jewelry-esque. Uh, I, I tend to prefer watches that are a bit more subtle. Uh, but this I love. I I love the look of this. I love the the graphicness of it, and uh, and it, it just looks great. Their drive, which I believe they only just produced uh, in twenty sixteen, has a very unique, a very becoming aesthetic to it too. And they I believe the first time, the for the first time, they released it in steel this this year at SIHH. Oh, really? Which is also a it's it's not round. It's not square it's not a a squircle or a, a hyperlipse it's got a a unique shape all its own yeah or a tourneau yeah yeah it's 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 not one of the classic shapes and i think the 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 other one that the other classic shape that that Cartier tends to do is a uh is a rectangle uh with with rounded corners on it and, and i've never been a big fan of that i don't i f- i think that 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 probably works really well for people with small wrists being someone with larger wrists, I, I find that, that something that's too narrow doesn't look good on me. But this, I think, would look great. I think this is a really nice shape and, and really nice proportions without being massively large. Now, maybe some of that might be influenced by the fact that I've been wearing a, an Apple Watch for the last couple of years. And 
So I'm I, the uh, the square watch aesthetic has become something I'm used to, uh, just because that's that's what I I've been seeing on my wrist for the last few years. But maybe that's what it is. But anyways, I I'm a big fan of the way that this uh, this design looks. Another reason I think Cartier has, has succeeded in making some very feminine pieces, or at least pieces that are, are targeted more towards the the female side of the market, without being ostentatious or, or overly blingy, is that they have a phenomenally talented watchmaker heading up their their watchmaking division, uh, who is a woman, Carol Forestier Casapi, who's just a brilliant, brilliant, uh, and very accomplished watchmaker. Um, she first made her name for herself in a, a watchmaking competition back in the late 90s, where she developed as a student what is effectively the, the predecessor to the Ulysse Nadin freak. And she actually went on to work at Ulysse Nadin and helped bring that freak to market. And then has done some similar work uh, at Cartier as well, uh, with things like their Astral Tourbillon and whatnot. But I think having that that feminine touch that high up in the company is what has enabled them to bring watches to market that, that do appeal to more of a female clientele. There was uh, there was an interview with this one of the CEOs of the the large brands, and I don't I want to say that it was Patek, but I can't remember now for sure. And he had brought his wife in, who had worked as a designer in in fashion before. To, to work on some women's watches for the brand because you know he made he made the good point that a, not having a small wrist not being a woman it's it's difficult to design uh, without understanding that aesthetic well and not you know it's easy for me to design something that I'm I want to wear because well I just have to look at my wrist and imagine what I want and, and there's you know there's obviously some some uh, interest in that but uh, it it's nice to hear that there's a, a woman heading their design team and that they're uh, that they're taking advantage of that because frankly I, I think there there needs to be more needs to be more women designing watches for women i think that's that's going to be the best way that we get better watches i was uh, surprised to learn this year that the the massive uh, centerpiece watch that langenzona makes every year for their booth at SIHH is actually a, a functional model uh, i learned that from uh, Jason Heaton uh, who uh, hosts the Grenado podcast with James Stacy, and uh, it turns out that this is an actual functioning, ticking model made primarily in aluminum for obvious reasons of of weight. You wouldn't want a, a fifteen foot across case of platinum dangling there in the the middle of a, a booth. That would just be un ungodly heavy. Not to mention expensive. That too. Yeah, yeah I, I have to say I'm a I'm a big fan fan of of Langensuna. I, I I like their aesthetics. In fact, in a lot of ways, there's a few German brands, and I like their aesthetic a lot more than some of the the Swiss brands, the traditional Swiss brands. And uh, and I am a fan of their of their design. Uh, they do tend towards the large side on their their cases. They're they're certainly not. Uh, uh, they're not going to be friendly to cuffs, uh, shirt cuffs. That's for sure. Uh, the uh, that one may be a little bit too large, though. I think they may have gone a bit too far with a with a fifteen foot one. But definitely going to fail the cuff test. <laughs> but uh, seriously, yeah, it's it's an impressive feat of engineering building a building this large uh, this large watch. I'm a fan of the the homage that they did the 1815 that they did for. Uh, to celebrate Walter Lange's uh, life. Walter Lange passed away last year at SAHH, uh, or at the same time he wasn't there. Uh, but he passed away at the same time, and they did this uh, this 1815 homage to him. I like the uh, the style of it. Yeah, that that uh, that huge model that they build is is incredibly impressive. I, I hope to get a chance to see that in person one day. And their, their triple split chronograph was also an impressive feet of, of engineering as well, which they released this year. The the double split is one that I've looked at and and thought that that would be a that would be a really great watch to uh, to own at some point. And and the the triple split just just takes that one that that one step further. And um, it's certainly an impressive feat of engineering they've uh, they've managed there. A split chronograph or uh, rattrapant uh, for anyone who might not. 
be familiar is a, a chronograph, which is uh, essentially like a, a stopwatch that is integrated with a, a normal timekeeping watch, uh, wherein as the hands are traveling, uh, there's actually another hand hiding beneath, you know, say, your main seconds hand in a, a regular split chronograph. In a double split, you'll have the minutes uh, mirrored as well, and then in the triple split, which Lang released this year, uh, they're also mirroring the hours with another hand underneath it. And as these hands are, are traveling around the dial, you can actually measure two events uh, simultaneously. And using a third pusher on the case, you can pause the hands, uh, one set of hands, generally the ones that are running underneath, uh, while the, the other hands that are superimposed over top continue to, to track the time. And then when you, you reset, the hands will, will fly back together. Uh, it's a really neat complication to play with and actually has a fair bit of utility under the, the right circumstance. Yeah, I have a, an old uh, Swiss pocket watch movement that was orphaned from its case uh, that's a, a split chronograph that uh, it needs a little bit of TLC. I'm, I'm looking forward to, to rebuilding that and, and building a new case for it. It is a pocket watch movement, so it's not going to see a lot of use. Um, you know, I don't have a huge amount of need for for a pocket watch and sort of daily wear, but I think it's going to be a fun a fun movement to uh, to rebuild and to uh, to recase because uh, the, we we don't see a lot of those split uh, split chronographs anymore, and I think it's a, a really neat, uh, really interesting design sense and and really interesting complication as well. As you say, it's it's uh, practical. If you're uh, if you're using it for timing anything, mind you, these days they're probably going to use far more sophisticated timing equipment for tracking sporting events and, and whatnot. But the the technical chops that that Lang has are very impressive. The finishing as, as well. Another standout watch in terms of, of finishing uh, was Votilainen's twenty one seven QRS. Uh, not the easiest name to remember, uh, but that was that was his new release this year at SIHH, and that featured an integrated retrograde date. So it uses a, a hand on the dial to, to indicate the date, and it's not done in a full circle, but rather in an arc. And as the, the hand moves around and transitions from the 31st to the 1st of the month, it will just gently make its way back to the 1st, rather than continuing its its arc i'm always impressed with the work that curry does and his team uh i am a huge fan of uh of of his watches and uh i i always love to see the uh the new pieces that he has uh he has out every year but uh yeah i'm the finishing on his watches is second to none and mm -hmm. his complications are fascinating I, I like to see what he does with uh with his stuff and He's always one of the very first, uh, very first watchmakers that I look up whenever there's a new show, so that I can see what uh, what he's released because uh, he he is always doing interesting interesting work and and it's always worth checking out. And it just it's just epitomizes craft. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's nice to see someone who is uh, who is still independent and doing fascinating work. He's they're not producing a lot of watches. I don't I remember hearing roughly how many watches they produce a year, and it's not, I don't think it's a thousand watches a year, the team that's there, but they're doing fascinating work, and it's all at the highest level. So I, I love seeing that uh, that he's managed to maintain his independence from the big brands and still be able to produce a, you know these, these gorgeous watches every year. Yeah, and, and part of maintaining that, independence has required him to, to bring more and more of the work in-house. For a long time, he was having dials made by Vosho, who also supplied Parmigiani Fleurier, where Votilainen got a lot of his early training working under some of the master watchmakers. Being a small brand, it's hard to get high-quality dials ahead of, of the bigger groups who are willing to, to pay more and to throw their weight around. So he actually bought up a, a dial manufacturer a couple of years ago, and has brought all of that in-house. So the engine turning that he's able to create and to pump out is, is incredible, and he's actually in the position now where, where he is supplying uh, other makers, uh, not just for his own watches, because he's got a, enough 
capacity there within his own brand that uh, he's actually able to to do work uh, for brands beyond just his own watches. Well, that certainly makes sense. And, and I know for myself, going down this path and and looking to see what I can make versus what, what I can get done, uh, having the ability to do this stuff in-house is is very liberating. And it is challenging trying to find people who are willing to do high quality work for you if if they're you know if you're looking outside of, of your own shop to do it. So I I, I can appreciate that uh, that he's done that and his uh, his engine turn dials are gorgeous. I'm I'm a huge fan. Being an engine turner, I'm a huge fan. I'm um, I certainly look at his dials as as uh, inspiration for some of the uh, some of the work that I'm looking at doing. So yeah, it's it's nice to hear that uh, that he's managed to do that, and that he's managed to expand the business to be able to uh, to do work for other people as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've got nothing but the highest praise for Votilanen's work. So another interesting bit of of engine turning I've noticed recently, uh, and this isn't something new to to SIHH twenty eighteen, uh, but uh, Montblanc uh, has taken their their logo. And actually turn that into an, an engine turning profile or, or motif, and uh, it's, they've done some some neat things with with that in a, a number of their their watches. I believe it's I don't know for certain, but I think it's Villeray, which uh, Montblanc also owns, that does uh, their engine turning work for them. Quite a a neat look. I have definitely a look I've not seen on any other brand for good reason. Um, being that it is their their logo, I was just wondering what your your thoughts were on on that, given your expertise in the area. Yeah, I'm just looking at the uh, at the 4810, which seems to be the dial they've done this on, and it's a great look. I, I also like the fact they've chosen to offset the center of the pattern. So this is something if if you're taking a look at this uh, at this watch, uh, this is done on a rose engine. And they've created a custom rosette for that rose engine to be able to do this work. This is certainly not something that you're ever going to find on somebody else's engine uh, unless they do work specifically for Mont Blanc because this is not this is not a typical uh, a typical pattern. But I think that the choice of well, first off, their logo I think works well for this kind of work. One of one of my big complaints about engine turning on watches is people tend to focus around the center of the dial because it's very easy to set up. You can put it into a chuck and it's automatically centered at the the um, the center of the the dial where the hands are, and it's so it's very very easy to do that work. And I and I think it's kind of lazy of most engine turners to do that. There, there's certainly a time and a place for it, and there are certain elements that definitely work best if they're if they happen to be concentric with that that center but I, I think too many people sort of work from that that center and never experiment beyond that so i i like seeing this uh, the version i'm looking at is a is a tur- tourbillon uh, movement and they've got the tourbillon exposed at the uh, six o'clock position and that's what they've chosen to center their pattern on and uh, you know that's that's a great design choice they've also chosen not to engine turn the entire dial uh, some of it is at a lower sort of the lower third i guess is uh, another plate down below that's been exposed and you can see the geneva stripes on that plate instead of the engine turning so it's nice to see a, a little bit of contrast there and and the way they've chosen to convert their logo into this pattern is great i think it works brilliantly and it, even though it doesn't match up with any of the the numbers, you know, any of the hour numbers, for instance, on here, I think it still works well. And I think it's yeah, this is a great a great use of engine turning that isn't the standard designs that you see with, let's say, uh, a Breguet. Now moving down market in their their line a little bit, I was very surprised by uh, what what Mont Blanc turned out. It's more sporty side of their their lineup. Now, I, I know that back in, I think it was 2016, the designer, David Serrato, who primarily responsible for bringing Tudor back to uh, more of a prominent position in the market with their, their heritage line and, and things like the, the Black Bay. Uh, he worked at, at Tudor for close to a, a decade, then moved on to Mont Blanc. And you can see his, his fingerprints 
without question on this new lineup of entry-level Mont Blanc timepieces that are, are cased in, in stainless steel. And I was, I was quite quite impressed um, with with the look uh, of these pieces as well as the, the technical chops. I'm not the biggest fan of the, the fact that they've integrated the, the mountain into the, the logo type. It serves its purpose in, in, in calling out the, the sportiness of the watches. I think I, I would have preferred to see the mountains set just above the, the logo type, uh, but it, it, to each their own. Um, beyond that, uh, I was just yeah very impressed with, with the pieces. Yeah, I, I, it is nice to see a brand bringing out a, a, a lower-end watch. I, I think that was, that was actually one of the trends I think I saw in this year's in this year's watches, a lot of movement sort of down market. And, you know, obviously some of these, you know, when I say down market for some of these brands, we're still talking about watches that are extremely expensive. But it was interesting to see a bit of movement down into, you know, sub $10,000 watches, for instance, from brands that were that were rarely doing that. I think uh, Patek ended up releasing a few watches that were in the quote-unquote more reasonable category. I think IWC did the same thing. Their, a few of their watches were a little bit more reasonably priced. It is nice to see brands focusing on on something that's a little bit more affordable in uh, in their line. One watch that, uh, that we didn't mention is the new uh, Vacheron Constantine Métier d'Art. Their, uh, their balloon ones, those are mm. gorgeous. I, I, I'm a big fan of the, the Métier d'Art, but this, this one with the... Uh, the plicajour enamel work. Uh, plicajour is a technique that doesn't have any backing behind the enamel, so it's very similar to a stained glass effect. It's extremely challenging to do well uh, because it's a translucent enamel. You uh, fire it onto a temporary uh, substrate like a mica or stainless steel and then remove it afterwards. It's, it's so difficult to do well this these look absolutely gorgeous plus the engraving work that's being done on these balloons these are the top end of the fashion online and they are gorgeous i've always been a big fan of the meche d'art but these particular ones are are beautiful again the most impressive execution i've seen in in this domain uh, would be on a a carry votilon in timepiece yeah did a, yeah. a case back using the the same technique yeah, it's it's uh, unbelievably risky to to commit to a, a to this technique as a you know in any kind of production sense i know these are small numbers but still they're uh i i can say for myself i would never commit to doing more than a single watch or a single piece using this technique just because trying to trying to maintain the consistency between pieces would be so challenging and uh Hats off to the to the enamelists that are working there because these are uh, these are remarkable pieces. In uh, a bit of a surprise move, uh, I I don't know how much I I agree with this, but uh, Vacheron Constantin in coming down market released a a watch this year that that does not um, adhere to the uh, Poisson de de Genève uh, the the Geneva hallmark. Uh, on its on its movement, which I don't know for certain, but I think it, this may be the the first watch they released since the that hallmark was instantiated that is not not hallmarked by the brand. Waters down the brand a, a little bit, uh, but I mean it's been been a tough few years for for a couple of these brands, so I, there is reason for them to be moving down market a bit. But with Vacheron. It, it, there, there are ways that they could have achieved a, a lower priced movement without forgoing the the Geneva Hallmark, and uh, they didn't even do any of the engineering work really. Um, in this particular model, they're relying on other brands under the Richemont umbrella. So it just it, it was disappointing. I guess yeah. I would say. Um, yeah. Yeah. It, it's not wasn't very Vacheron Constantine of them. No, I'll put it that way. Because they're they're in that larger group, uh, I wonder how much need is there for that brand to do this. Precisely, there are other brands in that group where they could have released this kind of watch, and it would have been 
more in keeping with the with the work that they're doing. Uh, I can understand if you're if you're a, an independent of those big groups. If you're if you're somebody like a, a Rolex, for instance, you need to be able to provide an offering at all different price points for for your customers because that's you're the only ones providing that within your within your organization. But in inside of these larger groups, I, th- I think it's I don't think it benefits them by uh, sort of muddying which which brands are using you know or doing what what within the group. If if you've got that that uh, stable of brands and available to you, why not maintain the the exclusivity and the the higher end design and feel of of the Vacheron and let uh, let one of the other brands take on uh, you know the the lower end the lower end market mm-hmm. and a, a brand in, under the umbrella that, that I think did that quite well uh, this year was Balmain Mercier with their um, the Clifton Balmatic which is a, a five day automatic watch that is powered by an, an entirely in house caliber uh, the um, BM. 12-1975A. It's, it's an impressive feat of engineering given given the, the price point for the brand uh, and given that it, it was built uh, basically from the ground up. Obviously, you've got a, a silicon hairspring in there, which is actually quite quite unique unto itself. I don't know of another brand that has layered two different silicon hairsprings together the way that, that they have um, in order to combat some of the the issues that you encounter uh, as far as isochronism is concerned with the the hairspring as it as the power winds down in, in the watch, uh, which is very important when you've got a five day power reserve on a piece. You can have quite a gradient uh, or potential gradient uh, of power coming to the oscillator. Uh, so they they call it a, a twin spire technology. That's their their marketing term for it. But essentially, they print. I guess it's etch two silicon hairsprings that have different alignments in, in their, their crystalline structure. And then they fuse the two together with a, a silicon dioxide layer that also doubles uh, as a, a degree of, of temperature compensation, which also helps improve the, the isochronism of the piece. So isochronism is essentially just how well a mechanical timepiece is going to to keep time over time, or any timepiece really, how well it's going to, to keep time under varying conditions, which they've done such a, a good job of that. Uh, these are actually chronometer grade movements in these watches, and you can actually request to have the, the chronometer certificate from COSC uh, for, for the watch that you purchase, and you, you can pick one of these up for less than, than three grand. So it's, it's impressive. And they've also done a, a silicon pallet fork and a silicon escape wheel which means that you don't have to worry about lubrication there, or more particularly lubrication degrading at the escapement over time. So you get a quite long service intervals out of it. And on top of that itself, by virtue of having a silicon hairspring, it also has a free-sprung balance, which is also going to give you more stable timekeeping over time. And also to their credit, I mean, they've been testing this in the, the lab, they say, for close to, to 10 years. Uh, before actually unveiling it, which is is much better than what a lot of other brands have done, sort of experimenting on the market. Now, I haven't taken a a really, really deep look at the movement, uh, but it appears to use the the same Seiko-style magic lever for the automatic winding. So I'm somewhat curious uh, if it it shares other traits with with some Seiko calibers. As, uh, this wouldn't be the first time that, that a Swiss brand has licensed Seiko technology to, to very, or not very quickly, but more quickly bring uh, an in-house movement to market. A price to just under USD, $3,000. There's some good good value to be had there. Now, a watch that you can get for an order of magnitude less that would, I would say, give this a, a run for its money is uh, Tissot's Powermatic 80, um, which on the the secondary market you you can pick up for as little as as 350 bucks. Another piece that that jumped out at me, but is is in the realm of the the unobtainable, uh, was uh, another of uh, Panerai's pieces uh, from their their lab program, their their R and D arm. It was the the L'Astronome, and uh, what 
what I thought was interesting about this piece was the way that they displayed uh, the sunrise and, and sunset complications. So this is, as the name suggests, uh, an astronomically oriented timepiece. So it has the, the equation of time and day-night indication and, and moon phase and, and all that. But nestled in down along the periphery of the dial uh, around, say, the 7, 8 o'clock area and the, the 4, 5 o'clock area on the dial, you've got your sunrise and sunset times that are configured to a location on the planet that the the purchaser of, of the watch would would request when ordering the piece to to have made for them and it's a, just a cam driven system that uh, will over the course of a year show you the the time that you can expect the the sun to rise and the the sun to set each day where where you've you've had the watch calibrated for yeah i i saw this watch and and i've I find this watch technically impressive, and like so many watches that Panerai make, it does nothing for me. I, yeah, no, I, I wouldn't wear it, but I I like what they've done in terms of the positioning and that it's it's subtle. Mm. I think the technical side of it is is unbelievable. Uh, I think the dial is horribly illegible. I I can't every time I look at this, and I'm staring at the you know photos. I, I just find it so difficult to see what's going on on this dial, and uh, it, it drives me crazy. I, I think it's uh, I I can't imagine ever wearing this watch, uh, but certainly they from a, a complication point of view, it's it's impressive what they've done with it. I'm a big fan of these. Same thing with the oh, who was it that did the was it Van Cleef and Arpel who did the the solar system uh, Ori? Yes, I'm again never. Uh, well, I could never afford the watch, but regardless, uh, I, uh, that is a gorgeous, gorgeous idea. I love the execution of it. I love what they've. I love that they've managed to miniaturize an orrery like that into, you know, into a, a watch. Yeah, I'm hugely impressed with the the technical side of that watch. It's definitely channeling a bit of of steampunk right down to the uh, antiquated loom. Uh, but I, I think their their priority there was definitely showing off the mechanism more so than than readability. Uh, right down to the fact that they did something really interesting with the the date disc, in that it is that the numerals on the disc are, are laser etched into a piece of, of borosilicate glass, and they use a polarizing filter over the date aperture, uh, so ah. that only when the the disc is situated under the aperture. You can read the numbers, and anywhere else, uh, it's it's see through and lets you peer into the movement and and see all that's going on underneath it. That explains the look of it. it I I didn't understand why the date uh, that date disc looked so odd, and that explains it now. And that that's a a great way of using a different technology to display something. I find that especially dates date windows I find horrible for the most part. That's a definitely an interesting way of doing it without, because date discs are huge and they take up a huge amount of space in, in a movement and they certainly cover up a lot of a movement, and so that that's a great way of making the rest of the movement visible through it and not have to uh, compromise on the size of it. Now a piece sort of the complete, well, not complete opposite. I mean, it still shares the same family DNA, but a complete flip to this would have been the their lab piece that they introduced last year. Which was their their lab ID Carbotech, which had a, a dial that is as black as you can get, blacker than black, if you will. Uh, it's just coated in carbon nanotubes that just absorb absolutely every last bit of light that's hitting the dial. So when you stare at it, it's like staring down into an uh, abyss. And Panerai is actually one of the few companies that could could pull off using this sort of of tech on one of their dials because they're they're so well known for their their cutout dials that they're able to to cut down through the dial have the, the luminescent material behind the dial and then just have that entire dial just blacked out completely i would hate to have to pull the hands off one of these watches because you, you <laughs> you've literally got just a, a field of, of carbon nanotubes that you you don't want to crush because if you crush them it, it completely ruins the the effect of um, just staring into this deep deep blackness i i would love to play with some of that material there's i've got some ideas for for experimenting with that I, I, unfortunately it's difficult to get a hold of and 
and license, but I, I would love to experiment with some of that stuff because, as you say, it is so black and it reflects so little light that there are things you can do with it that, that allow you to create a contrast. There's just no way to ever create otherwise. Yeah, Vant Vanta Black, I think, is one of the yeah. the companies that has brought it to to market. Um, two other solutions you could use, though, if you wanted to experiment it within your in your pens is if you're able to get a hold of someone with a, a femtosecond laser, uh, you can actually finish metal surfaces that are very similar in, in structure and are able to absorb, well, not absorb so much, but just disperse any light hitting it in trap, such a way yeah, that it's that not, not yeah. reflected back to your eye, yeah, trapping trapping the light. And Mother in Nature is actually able to, to deliver a very similar effect from the feathers of the bird of paradise. You're able to get some of the black feathers from from that bird. It has very similar properties to, to what these carbon nanotubes are, are doing on the dial of the Panerai Carbotech. And the other really impressive thing about the, the Carbotech, this was released at SIH last year, was that they are guaranteeing this watch for 50 years and stating that it will not need service at any point during this, this time period. And that's because the, the bridges of the movement were made from tantalum carbide, so they don't use any jewels whatsoever in the watch. And the jewels, or what are, would normally be jewels, are machined directly into the, the bridges, which are all, all made from this tantalum carbide, which uh, self-lubricating is not quite the right word, or not a an accurate way to describe it. It's more that uh, the coefficient of friction is just so low. That they don't need to lubricate it at all? Precisely. Wow. Yeah, that's, uh, that'd be interesting to see. I wonder well, if they're going to warranty it properly. That's uh, that's quite the quite the claim. Yeah, well, I mean, it does come with an asterisk, so you have to, <laughs> have to buy the watch and, and crack the, the user's manual to see what, what is and is not covered. But uh, yeah, yeah, a 50-year yeah. guarantee is, is bold. I mean, it comes with a an equal price tag to, to back that, though. <laughs> Sure, sure. I'm, I'm, I'm sure at that price tag, they can afford to uh, to take the risk on it. Mm -hmm. I think there's there's one other watch that I wanted to discuss, and this is the watch. You know, when you when you look through these, there's always always watches like, oh yeah, that'd be really cool. I'd love to love to own one of those if money was no object. But I, I think the the watch that jumped out at me this year, and if money were no object and I could buy one, I think it would have to be the IWC uh, Pal Weber Digital. <laughs> this watch, I, I know it's been polarizing. There are a lot of people who don't like the design of this. Um, so for the, for people who haven't seen this, it has a very bold white enamel dial on it. Uh, very stark. The sharp black lines. Well, there's there's a white and uh, a white version with black lines is a white version with blue lines, and there's a blue version with white lines on it. Uh, but very, very bold, very, very high contrast look. But the the really interesting thing about this is the way the hours and minutes are being displayed on here. They're using disks with numbers on them, and they are digital. So when it moves from... 12 to 13 all of a sudden you'll see the disc just change from the, the two to to the three and uh so it's not slowly creeping along from one one number to another uh so it's it's like a you know it, it is an old school mechanical digital display and i love the look of this uh the technical side of it is quite impressive it's it's actually a double barreled movement uh they needed a separate barrel to power the numbers uh, for the minutes because they are moving so much uh, because it has to obviously it has to tick over so many times in the in the hour so from a, a technical point of view the movement is quite fascinating and it's a it, it's an interesting design that they've done but i love the look of this digital display and that that instant tick over if you get a chance to see a video of it I'll, we'll see if we can find what, a video to, to put in the uh, show notes but it it looks great when it when it moves over. I I love that they did this watch. It, it's not a typical design. Uh, it's not typical for their brand either. But I love love the look of this watch. And I would I, I, if I could only have if I could have any watch from this from SIHH this year, 
this would be the watch that I'd have. I would wear this every day. I'd take the Votilinen. <laughs> okay, I wouldn't turn the Votilinen down, but this uh, <laughs> I, I would never turn down any of Carrie's watches, even even some of the ones that I'm not uh, I'm not as as big a fan of. Um, but this uh, no this this watch I would uh, I I love the look of this. I love the the uh, the aesthetics of this, and I think it's I think it's a great a great use of of sort of classic mechanical technology in a different way uh, that still looks, you know, it's got this great art deco feel to it. Yeah. I, I love the look of this. I also love the fact that they're doing uh, such a bold enamel dial like this. Very few people today are doing great enamel dials anymore. And, uh, and I think this is, this is probably the best enamel dial I've seen in years. And I, I, I love the look of it. Yeah. No, it's definitely done an admirable job with the, the tribute to Paul Weber. Another set of, uh, enamel dialed watches, which were a bit of a surprise. Omega has has taken the opportunity of using the the Olympics to sort of tread on this SIHH territory a little bit. They they announced a series of, of Olympic watches right around the the time that the show was occurring, and then just recently introduced a, a series of three watches that are effectively the the podium pieces. You've got a essentially silver silver gold and bronze. It's actually a, a white gold, a, a gold gold, and, and more of a, a rose gold. Piece, but they've got uh, really nicely done enamel dials on there as well. Very classic. I would say that the only change uh, that I would make to those is to, to do away with the, the Seamaster logo type at the bottom of the dial. But otherwise, uh, a handsome throwback to the, the Omegas of old with the best of, of Omega's modern technology ticking away under the hood. I like the design choices they've made for these dials. Uh, I'm bigger fan of the Speedmaster than the Seamaster sort of aesthetic, but uh, I still think they've done a great job on these. And uh, I think these are going to be, these are good. Unlike some, I find so many, so many pieces that people make for things like the Olympics uh, tend to be kind of kitschy and they tend to, the styling doesn't hold up very well. Uh, but I think these are, are going to be, I think these will hold up over time. They they certainly good looking watches. Yeah, oh, they're classic. I mean, I think they've they've probably got a a few hundred potential buyers just in the the podium winners. Because I mean, if I if I took home a gold medal or even a silver or bronze at the Olympics, and you know, there's an opportunity to to acquire one of these pieces for the year that I had won, uh, I'd be I'd be sorely tempted to pick one up. Oh, absolutely! I would, I would certainly, uh, I would certainly pick up one of these watches if I was in that position, and I would, I would wear it. It's, uh, it's definitely a good-looking watch. Well, it'll be interesting to see what uh, Omega pulls out at, at Basel in, in just a few weeks' time. 